0: Grab a Bible. We're going to be walking in uh, Luke chapter two. There are Bibles down in front of you. Don't have one? Feel free to pick that up. We're going to be in Luke chapter two in a really familiar story. It's kind of the story that we all think of, or at least if you've kind of grown up in church and been around church, if you've seen Charlie Brown Christmas, it's that kind of passage that we walk through. That's so familiar in Luke chapter two. But before we jump in, you know, I think at this time of the year, more than any other season. Our culture is constantly selling us, you know, candy canes and lollipops. And what I mean by that is it's constantly telling us this message that this is the year. You know, this is the year our relationships get right. You know, this is the Christmas where we get the gifts that really satisfy our soul, where everything kind of works together, where the family doesn't fight, where the decorations are just so perfectly set that we have this inner peace and this sense of joy and expectation in what's happening that I think every single year our culture's telling us this is it. This is the year where you're going to have peace on earth and goodwill to men. And each year it comes, and I'll tell you, I buy it. I mean, I jump right in. When I go to the department store, when I see all the lights, the sounds, I kind of get into it, and my heart starts to kind of head in that direction. But in this season, as Christians, we're not just celebrating Christmas. What we intentionally do is what Christians have done for the last 2,000 years is we celebrate Advent, Because see, in Advent, we're not just celebrating a seasonal reality. We're we're celebrating realities that are going to be with us all year long. That in the Christmas story, we're not just celebrating that Christ has come, but what Christ has done. That in coming, he's given us hope. And today, we're going to look at this idea that Jesus has come to give us peace. See, the word Advent in Latin means to come or to arrive. That in this Advent season, we look forward, but we also look back. So we look forward in that we look forward to the coming of Jesus, the day that he'll reconcile all things and all those things in our hearts that we hope will come true, will one day come true when Jesus comes and reconciles all things that sin has broken. That'll be the true Christmas celebration when all relationships are made right and all things that have been broken and and lead to pain will be made whole. We're looking forward, but we also look back. We look back at Christ's coming and, and his entrance into the world. And the celebration of what that means for us. And in Luke chapter 2, I think more than any other story, it describes Jesus coming into the world and what that coming brings. And my hope is that if the power of the Spirit would come through the word of God and through this very broken man up front, God might begin to reorder the desires of our hearts. That we would see in this passage what God really wants for us, and He'd begin in this season to give us a greater expectation for what Christmas means than just the sentimentality or the celebration, but rather God would truly bring peace in our hearts that affects peace with mankind. So let's jump in. You ready? We got this. Luke chapter 2. Let's jump in in verse 8. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields. And suddenly there was with the angels a, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went, an angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known, saying that he had told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear a verse like this, something so familiar. Even for those of you that may have not been in the church, maybe this is your first time today to be in the church to hear a passage like this, but it resonates in our culture. You know, when I hear that phrase in in verse 8 where it says, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night, it has a a certain feel to it, a certain sentimentality. It reminds me as one that grew up around the church, of all those not-so-great Christmas pageants that I was a part of, that there's still evidence in my parents' house with those kind of tinted 70s-type pictures that you see, reminding myself of all those celebrations we went through. But I think more than anything else, it reminds me of what we mentioned earlier, Charlie Brown Christmas special. It reminds me of Linus getting up on stage and that silhouette coming around him, and Linus quotes from the King James Version and he says this, And they were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came to them, came upon them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And I love this, and they were sore, afraid. You know, it has that chestnuts roasting on an open fire feel. It's got that jack frost, right, nipping at your nose, that peaceful, if I could use the eagles, easy feeling. You know, that's the culture, that's where we've stuck this text, that's the feelings we've associated with a passage like this, but if that's the feeling we have, then we're pretty far away from the meaning of the text and what it really communicates to people in the first century. This wasn't a peaceful, easy feeling, this is a story of terror and scandal. It's a story that really rocked the nation if you believed it to be true, it's a story that rocks your vision of who God is and what God has come to do. And it's scandalous, first and foremost, because of who the angels show up to. They don't show up to the winners. These guys are the losers. Because, see, in this story, it's scandalous because the good news of God's peace on earth and goodwill to men comes not to the elite, not to the powerful, it comes to the shepherds. And one of the pastors I've kind of got a crush on, I got a man crush on a guy named Tim Keller. Tim Keller's my man. You have these people in life that are historic kind of disciples in your life, and though I've never met him, I've read everything that he's written, and sometimes I can feel like I'm thinking his thoughts. But one of the phrases he introduced me to is this phrase called kingdom economics. And in kingdom economics, what we find is in Scripture and in stories like this, that God doesn't value things the way that we value them. God doesn't put the same price tag on things that we put a high price tag on, that God doesn't necessarily value power. And prestige, He doesn't value beauty or fame or recognition. No, God takes the values of the world and he turns them upside down. That the message of Christmas is very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. That God in the Christmas story is confounding the wisdom of the wise. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are Why? so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, this story is radically upside down. If you had to make a list, and now this is a list in the first century, so it's not our list, but if you went back to the first century and you made a list of the top 10, maybe the top 100, or even the top 1,000 people that the angel would come to announce that the Messiah had come, the shepherds would not be on your list. If you had a top 10 list of who the the angels would not come to, now the shepherds would probably be on that top five of that list. Maybe tax collectors, prostitutes, and then shepherds someplace in that mix. See, this is the last place anyone expected God to show up. This is the last place that peace on earth, goodwill to men, hope, joy, love would show up in the nation of Israel. Because see, the Jews, when they thought of the shepherds, they thought of the low lives. These were the bottom of the barrel, the guys you don't want around your kids because you don't know what they're going to do. See, these, these were the kind of people in their culture in that day were considered liars and thieves. You see, what shepherds would do is they spent a lot of time out in the fields, now, they weren't with their flocks. They're shepherds because they're hired by somebody that owns the sheep. And they'd go out for months grazing into the fields. And what they would do is the sheep would have kids. I guess that's the word. They would have kids, which means baby sheep. And what the shepherds would do is they would take the wool, they take the milk, they'd take the kids, and they'd sell them. Because see, the rich guy doesn't know. He doesn't know what he's losing. And they would go out into the culture and sell them. And so the Jews, the real pious ones, would boycott the shepherds. And the idea is you never bought anything from a shepherd Because the shepherd was a liar and a thief. And see, because of that reputation as a lowlife, they weren't allowed to worship. You know, if they tried to get in the door today, our security guys would say, nope, nope, no dogs allowed, right? No shepherds in here. No one can come into this building. This isn't a place for you. Because see, in the first century, they thought these are the guys outside the grace of God. You know, these are the ones to whom the promise of God, yeah, they just don't apply. You've broken too many rules. You've done too much wrong. God could not come to you. And yet, how miraculous in this story that the angels do not show up to those in power, those who are doing Bible studies or even a little prayer group, but rather a group of roughneck men in the middle of nowhere in the darkness. The angel shows up and brings this message of Christmas, that the message of Christmas is that God has come to the most unlikely people in the most unlikely way. And why would he do that? so that we might know the story of Christmas is a message of peace. And see, I think it's often a message of peace to those of us who feel far from God. Or maybe even those of us who have experienced things that people in our culture would say, hey, that's far from God. You don't belong to God. There's nothing of God that would desire you. See, Jesus comes to those who are far from him. And I think in our community, when and I guess this is true, when people think of the church or they think of the Christmas message, I think many in our community that don't know what we know or or haven't uh, given their life to Christ would think that the God of the story at Christmas hates them. The God of the story of Christmas wants nothing to do with them, that they're too far, they're too far away, and so if God hates me, I might as well hate him. That I think there's a, a story of animosity between those who do not believe in the God that we believe in. And yet the story of Christmas is the purpose of that animosity I think is often miscommunicated. That though there is, and we're going to talk about this, sin and brokenness in the world, the first thing that God does is He initiates His love to those who are angry and maybe hostile towards Him. Those who think, there's nothing that God would want with me. And see, in that story, in the story of Christmas, what we see is a pattern of the life of Jesus. It's not just something that happened once when He came. No, what we see is in the coming and in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was known as one who was a friend to those who were far from God. Jesus spent a lot of time with people who looked nothing like God and wanted nothing to do with God. You see this in Mark chapter 2, if you want to turn there in verse 15. As Mark describes some of the moments in Jesus' life and his ministry, Mark says, and as he, meaning Jesus, reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners, so notice, many tax collectors and sinners. We were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Jesus is with the ungodly, the broken, those who are far from God and think God wants nothing to do with them. Verse 16 And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would you show up there? Why would you come to them? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. I've not come for those who are well, but those who know that they're sick. And the most common accusation against Jesus was that he was a friend of those that God was not a friend of. Which means if Jesus is a friend of those that God is not a friend of, you can discredit his message. You can discredit who he says he is because, see, God would not spend time with people like that. And yet imagine the miracle of the Christmas story, this message of peace that God shows up where no one expects, to the person no one expects, to give the greatest news of all time, that God is now reconciling man to himself. God shows up to people who are far from him. Now, what if that message got a hold of us? I mean, I know it's got a hold of us and that we set up nativity scenes and we go to Christmas Eve services, but I'm not talking about culturally. What if that got a hold of our heart? What if we started seeing people differently? What if we started seeing the people who are far from God, not just according to their sin and what they do, but rather seeing the people who are far from God according to the way that we see ourselves as those to whom God has come to share a message of peace and reconciliation. That we would see those who are far from God as the intention and the purpose of Jesus coming. To say to them, there is now peace. God is coming not to be an enemy of yours, but rather to make peace in a relationship with you. That would we would begin to see this world and to see people differently. That Jesus shows up to those no one expected him to show up to you know in John chapter 3 verse 17 we often hear John three sixteen; it gets all the publicity but John 3 17 says this that Christ has come into the world and notice not to condemn the world but rather to save the world from condemnation And see we have rebelled against God and scripture's clear that we're born in iniquity that there's no unrighteous, no, none, not one. There's, all of us have turned away. Together we have become worthless. Meaning that we have rejected God as the creator. And what we've done is we've replaced God with things that uh, are, are made of mortal hands. That we've worshipped the created rather than the creator. And because of that, there's now enmity between us and God. See, for peace to come, it means that there's war that's present. Now, the peace that God has come to bring is not just a a peace between us and mankind. It's a peace between us and God, that God is making us right with him. He's stepping into our rebellion. And instead of giving us what we deserve, which is condemnation, because he's saying condemnation is already in the world. We're walking in that. We understand that our sin deserves the wrath of God, that for God just simply to ignore the things that we've done, our rebellion against him, that's not justice and that's not goodness. Goodness. But instead of giving us what we deserved, Jesus has entered into that rebellion. And he's brought peace between us and peace to God. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. That what the incarnation, the coming of Jesus means is that God is dwelling among those who have rebelled against him. You have Jesus coming into the world to engage shepherds like us. Because see, he said in the first of the Beatitudes blessed are those who receive the kingdom of God, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He's saying, blessed are those who know they're just shepherds by heart. Now, they may not dress like shepherds. They may even have some of the uh, ways of the world, meaning the values of the world that cause others to see us as significant. And yet the reality is, as God draws near, we recognize we're all shepherds at heart. That inside what we need more than anything else is to say, Father, I need you. And I thank you that you've drawn near through the coming of Jesus Christ to bring peace into my life. Father, thank you for gathering. Thank you for meeting me. See, the story of Christmas is God coming to those who are far from him. But in that, here's notice the second thing. It shows up in glory. It says, as the angels say, the second thing we see is the glory of God dispels the glory of lesser things. That when it says in verses 13 and 14, the angel shows up and it says, suddenly there was... With the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What's happening in this story is the glory of God is shining around them. And again, remember, this is a group of guys in the middle of nowhere, no one's watching, probably having the kind of conversation that guys have in the middle of nowhere when no one's watching, kind of out in the fields at night, the kind of locker, uh, excuse me, locker room talk that we tend to find ourselves into. This is what's happening. What what, what appears around them is the glory of God, which means they're terrified. Of course you're terrified. They're about to expect an execution to take place. Because, see, their story, their mind, their thoughts is not on the good things. They're not studying the Scriptures. They're not sitting down and praying. Instead, God shows up in a very ordinary moment in life, and they're terrified. And it says the glory of God showed up. Now, the idea of glory, if if we were going to translate that word into another word in our English language, we may say the weight of God showed up, the weightiness of God, because the glory of God pushes all other glories out. See, the glory of God, when it comes in, it has this ability to reorder things, to change our mindset. That's what's happening in the story. The shepherds are having this normal conversation in life. The glory of God shows up and everything gets reordered. Their attitudes, their thoughts, their experience, their emotion, everything starts to change. Because when the glory of God comes in, it begins to move lesser, lesser things out. And they're afraid. They're afraid because they know they don't belong. They're afraid because in seeing God, I don't know about you, but in seeing God, I often see myself. And I say, woe to me. (laughs) I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord God Almighty. My life has to change. And how about you? When I first experienced that, what I thought is I could change myself. And see, after coming to faith in Christ, I even thought, okay, it's up to me to change myself. It's kind of like Jesus came in to my house, cleaned up the room, but it's my job to keep the room clean. That dying on the cross just kind of got things settled for me, but it's now my job to kind of maintain this life. And that's the, the road that I kind of walked on for many years. Even, I think, into the beginning of my pastoral ministry, I walked in this idea that it's, it's up to me. I, I've got to really live up to the expectation of God that I've got to so live in a way that he's going to be impressed with me and say, hey, that's my man right there. But see, when the glory of God comes in, what happens is you realize you're not that weighty. You're not that weighty. There's nothing I can do that can endear God's love to me more than what God's already done. There's no room I can clean up. There's, there's no organization that I can hold on to in my life or a way that I could live that would cause him to love me any more than he already does. Because, see, in the coming of the glory of God, it's God's story to us that he's drawing near to us who know we are far from him. Because, see, the glory of God pushes out these lesser desires. See, another way to think of glory beyond weight is to think of glory as beauty our majesty, something that has this mystifying effect upon the mind, the heart, I think the emotions and our behavior. That when the glory of God shows up, lesser beauties are not as beautiful as they were before. Lesser desires just don't have the same hold. And when the fullness of God's glory comes, there's this greater affection that begins to saturate the heart. Let me kind of break that down a little bit because I know it's a little lofty language, isn't it? In Texas, one of the things I miss about Texas is the beef jerky store. Because, <laughs> see, in Texas, you have a beef jerky store. We had a beef jerky store in Mansfield, Texas, and it was, it was the best of the beef jerky stores. It was great. Uh, and certainly around Christmas time, Thanksgiving, we'd go there, and we, we'd buy it's $24 a pound, it's good stuff. Uh, we'd go to the beef jerky store, we'd, we'd load up, get ready for Christmas. And yet, if I had a choice between the beef jerky and a perfectly grilled steak, Between majesty and just something good, I'm going to go for the steak. Because see, when something great, something better shows up, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with beef jerky. It's just not enough. Because in the light of something that's beautiful and glorious, you say, okay, I'm created for that. And though there are lesser things I'm chasing after, when the real thing comes, when the satisfying thing comes, our life begins to get reordered around that experience of ultimate beauty and ultimate glory. And if that's the story of Christmas, is that the story of our life? That we've heard this story enough. We've heard this story enough of the angels saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on those with whom his favor rests. But has the true weight of that message begun to reorder our lives? What would that look like? It may look like that we start treating those who we think are far from God a whole lot better than we think they deserve. I mean, come on now if the glory of God was willing to come to them, wouldn't that kind of put in our hearts a desperation that they may come to know the God that we worship? I mean, think of the angels showing up to these broken people. They had to wonder for a moment, why am I here? These are not the ones that get this good news. And yet, if that's who God has come to, then we should be the kind of people who who have an ethic that pulls us out to those who are broken, those who feel far from God, those whose lifestyle doesn't lead them to God. And it's not that we're justifying the sin in our life. No, see Jesus was a man that walked in this space between being in the world but listen, not being of the world. He had a quiet confidence in the promise of God that he would be in the presence of people and know the word of God, the truth of God, the love of God is what's going to change them, not just me as a person, but it's the power of God. When we walk in that humble confidence, that humble trust in the truth of God, that we're not better, we're just redeemed. We're not a better kind of people, but we are agents of that redemption, agents of the glory of God to go out into the world and say, hey, listen, there's something better. Beef jerky's great, but you've got to try a steak. You've got to sink your teeth into the beauty and the majesty that begins to allow all other majesties to lessen. You know, instead of sin management, we need to start worshiping that which God has revealed to worship the fullness of the glory of God. Because see, in this story, you know what's magnificent, what's glorious, what's really happening? It's not the angels. I mean, I'd be blown away just with one angel, let alone a heavenly host, which is thousands, I learned last night, of angels showing up, an army of angels. I'd be amazed by that, but when it says glory to God in the highest, the glory is attached to the message. It's not attached to the angels. The glory of God is not seeing the beauty of angels. The glory of God is hearing the message of the gospel that God has come to bring peace to those on whom his favor or to those in whom he is pleased. See, notice that in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Some translations say peace among those with whom they have found favor with God. They found the grace of God. See, what is the glory that God came to bring? The glory is the message It's the message of the gospel that through Jesus Christ and faith in him, we can have peace with God and we can be reconciled to him. We can understand what true beauty is. We can understand what it means to live and to live an abundant life, not driven by desire, but driven by what I was created to be, which is a worshiper satisfied by who God is and what he's done. You know, I think our challenge, and I think this is true for the Christian and the non-Christian, Our challenge is that um, often we turn turn to ourselves instead of turning to God. And the reality is we make a crummy God. See, instead of turning to God and, and laying on God's shoulders the things he said he wants to carry, you try to make peace in life by putting on your shoulders the things that he's promised to carry. Now, as the non-Christian, often we just kind of walk in that in totality and we trust ourselves as God. And, and again, you're a crummy God. Because the reality is no matter how bad life has been or how bad people have treated you, no one, has, no one has messed up your life more than you. No one's lied to you more than you. No one's deceived you more than you. No one's led you down the primrose path more than you. And you knew the direction you were headed. No one has hurt you more than you have. We make a crummy God. And see, the offer of the Christian life is just to surrender. To say, I want to stop trying to be God. And God, through your majesty and through the message of the gospel, the coming of Jesus, would you be God in my life? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you reveal your beauty? Would I recognize that I am sinful and in need of the grace of God and that apart from you, the wages of sin is death, which means war with God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is peace? Peace means God is God, and I am not. Peace is putting God in his proper place and allowing him to carry the things in life that I'm not supposed to carry. And as a non-Christian, it's just simply saying, God, I surrender to you. I want you to be the peace of my life. I don't want to try to chase after peace because you are peace. And any peace I may find is a counterfeit compared to what you want to give me. And for some of us, I think that may be where we are. We just need to say, Lord, would you be that God of hope and peace in my life? But for the rest of us, it, I think that challenge of trying to be God, I think that's also true for us as Christians. There's a lot of junk we're carrying that we're not supposed to carry. Let me give you an example. I think all of us have people in our life we want to see changed. And we're working to change them. We're manipulating to change them. We're setting up the scenario to see change. And, and there's a burden in your life, isn't there, when you want to see somebody change and you can't change them? When you know that the life that they're living is a life that's not going to lead to peace and joy, but instead there's this, this just a brokenness in your life. And you feel like, you know, if I could just convince them, if I just get things right, if I just decorate the house right for Christmas, if the in-laws come, they're going to see the beauty of Jesus and everything's going to kind of get set right. And we, I think we carry these things. We, we carry this idea that we can fix things. Or maybe it's even at work. There's situations that we think we can control. That if I do the right thing, say the right thing, if I am the right person, I'll control it, and the outcome will be exactly what I want. And we carry this false sense of peace. Or maybe it's in your marriage. If I just complain enough, if I just kind of get in there and and, and manipulate enough or say the right things, then I'm going to get out of this thing what I want. And what happens is you become the God that's trying to provide peace in your life. And you're taking on your shoulders responsibilities that only God can carry, and there will be no peace in that. There'll be no peace in that. And and let me kind of share from my own story, and I shared this last week. You know, when I get up here, I often get up here a little anxious because I I don't like to stand in front of people. You're all looking at me. And and I know why, but I sometimes wonder why. What's wrong? And see, if if I thought I had to carry the day that my peace is based on my ability to speak, my ability to be a great communicator, I'm going to be broken and run down in life. I wouldn't be an effective pastor. Because, see, my hope and my peace is not that I'm a great communicator, but the word of God is powerful. And when it goes out, it's going to come back. And it's going to come back, and it's going to produce fruit. And I've got to rest in what God's given me. I've got to rest in his promises. I've got to rest in the power of the gospel, the power of his word. And I've got to rest and pray and plead. And that's what happened this week. I have to plead with God out of Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, that what I prayed for you this week is, God, would you let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts? This week, Father, as we gather on Sunday morning, I prayed numerous times this week, would the peace of Christ rule in their hearts? Because here's what I know. I can't solve the problem in your life. There are people going through loss in this room, and I can't take that grief away. There are people walking through brokenness, and I'd love to come in and offer something that's gonna take all the problems. I can't do that. The only thing I can do is be faithful to my God, faithful to his promises, faithful to his word, and plead with God, God, would the shepherds hear? Would you come to those who are broken and weary? And Father, would you just say to them, you're not God, I am. And would we confess, and maybe this is our prayer today as we conclude, is just to say, God, you're God and I'm not, and I don't know what the specific areas you need to say that over, but there is something in your life right now that you need to just be honest and say, I'm not God. I want this to change, and that's okay to be honest that we want relationships to change, but we can't be that agent of change. I can't change my life, let alone change yours, but what I can do is allow God to be God in my life and just confess, Lord, I'm surrendering to you. Would the glory that changes my husband, my wife, would the glory that changes my situation be your glory? You know how that happens is we have to often become weak, the foolish things of the world, to shame, the strong. What does that mean? It's faith. It's saying, God, I need you, and I don't know. I need you just for my future destiny. I need you for my marriage, my finances. I need you for my Christmas. I need you in all aspects of life so that I may walk in the peace that comes from you and not a peace that's manufactured for me. Could we do that today as we, um, as we conclude? I just want to pray for us. And that uh, Father, you would allow, just to the story of this message, even the, if we don't grasp the full scandal of the message of the gospel, the, the coming of Jesus, coming to those who are far from you. Lord, I think, to be honest, I often think I'm a, a decent guy. I'm not that far from you. There's not that much to fix. And yet, Lord, when that's the story of my heart, it's because I'm looking at lesser glories. I'm limiting, Father, what you want me to become because it's not about what I want, but Lord, it's, it's in seeing you that we see the fullness of who you are and as that begins to fill us, there's a, there's a greater vision in life. It's not about us, but instead, Father, it's about just admitting we're not God. We can't carry the brokenness of this world. We can't carry the brokenness of our own life, but would you, Lord, through your power and strength through the message of the gospel and faith, would you bring the peace that surpasses all of our understanding. And would you in this season guard our hearts in Christ Jesus because it's through his blood that we have peace with God. Father, we let go of everything we're carrying that's not to be on our shoulders. And by faith we say, you're our savior. Help us, Father, and help us to be faithful and put our confidence in you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.